there was a little orphan girl who was adopted. Now, in the first family that she was adopted in, somehow she just did not integrate well. There was a gap between the biological children and herself. In fact, when the family went on vacation, they will only bring the biological children with them and leave her with relatives. And again and again, she had to say goodbye to them whenever they went for vacation. No matter what she does or how well she behaves, she was just not able to join them. She was just not able to really be a part of the family. Now, this family eventually gave her up and she was adopted into another family. She was warmly received in this new family, but because of her previous experience, she never fully integrated herself. And one day, the family announced they're going on a trip to go to Disneyland. This was met with rejoicing all around, except for this little poor adopted girl. After this, she started behaving very differently. Instead of her normal behavior, she started acting out. She knew that she is only adopted. She doesn't truly belong. So she acted in a way that's totally opposite what she was expected to be like. She started agitating her older sister. She started telling lies. She was disobedient. And she did this because she knew she didn't belong. Now, the dad was exasperated with her behavior, and one day he pulled her aside and told her, we need to talk. Immediately, she responded, I know you're not taking me to Disneyland. Understanding the situation, the dad then asked her, is this trip something that we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of the family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong, but you're part of our family. We're not leaving you behind. The day came, they all went to Disneyland. She was accepted as a true member of the family, not because of the merits of what she had done, but only because she was loved by her adopted family. How do you feel as members of God's family. Do you think God adapts, adopts you like the first family or the second one? Do you perhaps feel that you may be a second-rate Christian when you look at others who are holier than you or a better example of Christ-likeness compared to you? Now, today's passage is actually more on how the Jewish Christian and Gentile Christians relate to each other, but let us see how the passage helps us to think about this question. Come with me to our passage, verse 11. Therefore, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And here we see Paul starting with therefore. So we know that this means that this is part of his message. It doesn't stand alone. It is a response to the things that he has spoken earlier. So if you remember last week's sermon, Paul shows us how we were all once sinners, but God has saved us, adopted us seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So this whole line of argument that Paul is making here is going to be about what does these things mean for those who are saved by God? In our passage here, we see that Paul is specifically speaking to Gentile Christians. How do we know this? Because he addresses them, you Gentiles. 
and he tells them to remember two things. Firstly, they were once called the uncircumcision by the Jewish people. This is not a good term, and it shows that the Gentiles were not acceptable to the Jews. It shows a cultural bias, but it's not a totally untheological statement. The term circumcised is a reference to how the Jews were a circumcised people. And they were circumcised because they followed the laws. They obeyed the commandment to circumcise, and because of that, they believed they were close to God. They snip, snip, so they think they're clean. The Gentiles, who are called the uncircumcision, they are regarded as unclean because they don't snip, snip. So they are rejected, they're considered unclean because of a piece of flesh. It isn't just about circumcision, but it's about whether you're, not, whether you're someone who follows the Old Testament law or not. So the Gentiles, no matter how well-behaved they are, they are not followers of the Old Testament law. Like the little girl in the first family, they didn't quite belong. So because of this, the Gentiles are considered by the Jews as far off from gods. They are like filthy stray dogs to them. They are ritually unclean. And that's the mindset that the Jews originally had of the Gentiles. So the Jewish mindset is that only Jews are saved by God and Gentiles have no hope. But Paul tells the Gentiles this was what they once were. It was true once by the reckoning of Jewish law, but it is no longer the case now. Then we go to the second thing that Paul asked them to remember. Verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here Paul reminds them that the Gentiles were never naturally part of God's Israel. The Jewish people, they were the ones to actually have hope. And they had hope in God's promises to them because they are the ones who God made a covenant with. The Christ that they placed their hope in comes from their people. The Gentiles, by contrast, have nothing to look forward to. They have no promises from God. God never called them His people. God did not seek to dwell with them. After all, they were those who were dead in their sins, followers of the prince of the power of the air and by nature children of wrath. The only things that Gentiles can look forward to in their nature is the outer darkness, the gnashing of teeth, as they are finally fully separated from God. However, this wasn't God's plan. Think of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see that God will bless the Jews, but we also see that God is going to use this to bring a blessing to all the nations. And ultimately, we do see that blessing finally coming to the Jews in the person of Christ. In Christ, God brings out this blessing to the Jews who trust in God. As promised, they find rest through God's salvation and they are glorified in Christ in heaven. In Christ, God works out this exact same blessing even to the Gentiles. And this is what Ephesians 1 points out. 
God is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. God is drawing all things that belongs to Christ and proclaims it as His. And that includes the Gentiles. And this is what Paul picks up in verse 13 as he comes to show what God did. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through the death of Jesus Christ, God reaches out to these unclean Gentiles who are far off and God brings them near to Him as He washes away their sins, imputes to them the righteousness of Christ. And suddenly now we realize that there are Gentiles who are also made holy and made part of God's people. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who hath made it both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so we see that Christ himself becomes their peace through what he has done. In fact, what Christ did was greater than the shadow of the Old Testament expectations. The Jewish people expected a temporal, material blessing to the Gentiles, to the promise to Abraham. They were expecting the rule of a Davidic king for Israel to be exalted, and then he will bring peace and prosperity that even the Gentiles will enjoy under his rule. But what Christ did was he brought an eternal and perfect blessing. What Christ did was to break down the wall of hostility. Now, what does that mean? It's a loaded term, and we don't have much time, so let's quickly run through it. Now, in the temple, there is literally a wall that separates the Jews from the Gentiles. You see, the Gentiles can only come to the outside of the wall. Only the Jewish people can go in. In fact, there was a sign in the wall that warns Gentiles that if they disobey and go in deeper into the temple and they die, they have no one to blame but themselves. Now, it could mean that the Jews are saying that God will kill them for entering the temple when they are unclean and when they shouldn't enter. Or it could mean that they will, as a people, kill whoever enters. Whichever the sign means, Gentiles cannot worship God in the same way that the Jews do. You see, the only way to worship God in the Old Testament is to become a Jew, to leave behind your Gentile identity. But through Jesus and the blood He spills on the cross, now the Gentiles too can worship God as they are. But if you look deeper, there is more. This wall of hostility is broken down, not just through the acceptance of the Gentiles, but also through the means of the abolishment of the Old Testament law, which we see in the next verse. So besides the literal wall in the temple that prohibited worship, the laws themselves become a barrier that separates the Jews from the Gentiles. Think about it. What is the point of the Old Testament food laws, the law about clean and unclean foods? On one hand, it is to teach the Jews about the idea of defilement, right? that there's good things and there's bad things, there's certain things you should not do. On the other hand, it also serves to limit the fellowship they can have with the Gentiles. You see, one of the big issues in the Old Testament is regarding the Jews being enthralled by Gentile cultures leading them to abandon God and ultimately worship other gods. So the food laws, the clothing laws, the clean, unclean laws, they were all part of a system to discourage fellowship with the Gentiles. You see, even if they meet together, if the Jews keep the laws, they can't have true fellowship. The Jews can't have table fellowship because the Gentiles eat unclean things. 
You can't have an easy life if you marry into a Gentile family because there are many things they do that would make you unclean, that cause you to violate the laws. So by nature, the law makes Jew-Gentile relationships difficult. This was intentional, and it was done to preserve the Jews as a people. So through the fulfillment of the law by Christ's death, there is no longer a wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles because the law no longer applies as a means of righteousness. Gentiles no longer have to become Jews in order to draw near to God or to have fellowship with Jewish Christians. See, Christ has broken that barrier. So in this manner, Christ himself is their peace. In fact, that wasn't all that Christ has fulfilled in terms of Jew-Gentile relationship. Have a look again at verse 11. The circumcised one, the Jews, judge and reject the uncircumcised ones, the Gentiles. However, Paul states here that their confidence is only in something that is merely made in the flesh. In Christ, however, we see the contrast of the merely fleshly confidence. Instead, what we see is Christ brings about true circumcision, which is by the Spirit working in the heart. And this he achieved ironically by his flesh, offered as a sacrifice. So the message then is not to put your trust in humans' work by flesh, the circumcision by human hands, but instead look to the true circumcision, the making of sinful people into God's people through the circumcision of the heart by the work of the Spirit. And this is achieved through the work of God through Christ's flesh. So this work done in the flesh of Christ at the cross, then changes how we seek peace from God. Verse 15, by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So it is through this that Christ himself becomes our peace, not just the fulfillment of the law through his death, but also through how Christ fixes the fundamental problem with humanity, the sinful nature, which is represented by uncircumcised heart. Through Christ, the Spirit comes to the believer, circumcises the heart, and it enables them to be able to respond to God. They're no longer dead in their sins, but alive in Christ through His work on the cross. So Christ fulfills the promise of Jeremiah about the circumcision of the heart, and this leads to God making a new people for himself which are now able to obey him. And this new people, as what Paul is telling us, comprises both of Jews and Gentiles who trust in Christ. And that means all of them are united in the one body of Christ. You see, the Jews and Gentiles can put aside their enmity, the differences. They can have peace with each other as they accept each other as members of the same family. However, we also see that Paul shows us that the enmity that Jesus has resolved is not just between the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 16, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, there is also enmity between God and all humanity. See, when Christ died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn into from top to bottom, signifying God's hand at work. Now, the curtain is work with images of the cherubim, guardian angels that form a barrier between God and man. Just like how the cherubim with a flaming sword was stationed at the entrance to Eden once Adam and Eve were cast out. 
You see, that curtain was symbolic of the separation between God and man. That curtain formed the barrier between the sinful human beings and a holy God. The hostility is so palpable that to enter past that curtain without being properly prepared means death. Only a high priest, specially chosen by God, after having done rituals once a year to purify himself, and only on that one day he may enter past that curtain to offer sacrifice. And even then, not with confidence, but with bells and rope tied to him. The bells on his rope to tell people outside that he's still moving around, he's still alive, he has not offended God and dropped dead. The rope, so that if he dies, they can pull out his dead body when the bell stops ringing. Such was the uncertainty that the best of men who goes to be an intermediate between God and people goes in with. Such was the hostility between man and God. You see, therefore man is limited in how he may naturally approach God in worship. But now, through Christ, that perfect sacrifice, that perfect mediator, through his own blood, he enters into the Holy of Holies, and through him, the curtain was torn, signifying that the way is now open. Man can now come to God personally and worship him. And so Christ brings true peace between sinful mankind and a holy God. And some of you may have wondered, what is the implication then of verse 15, which mentions abolishing the law of the commandments? Uh, does that mean that we can now ignore what the Old Testament commandments and law say? From Ephesians itself, we can see that it doesn't mean that God's laws are no longer relevant. Right? Because after Paul says this, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, Paul himself mentions one of the commandments, honour your father and mother. So it's not about that. What this means, however, is that we are no longer beholden to the law for our salvation, but now we seek to obey the spirit of the law out of love. Imagine a child who's taught by his parents to be back home by 10 p.m. at night. The parents had a curfew as a law and punishes the child when he breaks it. However, when the child grows up into a man, he's no longer under the same curfew and he is now an adult the law no longer applies to him. However, if we understand that the spirit of the curfew is such that the child learns to be wise in making decisions, teaches him to be disciplined, teaches him wisdom to make sure that he's able to get enough rest to be able to function well the next day, then we see what is being taught. Then we see that while the letter of the law is not enforced, the spirit of the law is still enforced for the good of the boy. See, when he grows up, the right thing for him then is to not make bad decisions, but to be wise. For example, not staying up late to party, ensuring that he gets enough rest so that he's able to go to work the next day. See, he's no longer under the law of the curfew, but because he has been trained to have the wisdom to be able to know what is good and right, he now knows what is the right thing to do to please the parents, which is to keep the spirit of the law even though he is no longer under the law. See, if we are children of God, then in the same way we look to the law to understand how we should be behaving rather than seek to come under the law. 
This means there's no need to obey the ceremonial aspects of the law, such as not eating unclean food like pork. But instead, it's about understanding the spirit of that law, which is meant to teach us not to defile ourselves. And so we don't defile ourselves with sinful thoughts and desires that comes out of our hearts. So it's okay to eat pork, not okay to defile yourself with sinful thoughts and desires. It's okay for you to have fellowship with sinners, not okay for you to follow them in their sins. Right? Then the next verse comes up and it's a little mysterious. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now notice the tense. He's talking to the Ephesians. So you need to ask, when did Jesus preach to the Ephesians? Now, it could be talking about Jesus preaching the good news after his resurrection to both Jews and Gentiles. Perhaps he appeared in Ephesus to preach the gospel before he's assumed to heaven. I'm not sure about that. It does seem unlikely, but I think there is a more probable answer. I think it talks about how through the words of Scripture spoken by the apostles, the work of the Spirit, Jesus brings his word of reconciliation with God to the people. It captures how Jesus is at work in our lives as we hear his voice through Scripture, faithfully preached even until today. The same words that convicts both Jews and Gentiles to come near to God, Jesus works in us even through the Spirit, sorry, even today through the Spirit, using that same words to bring us before God, allowing us to be able to call him Abba Father. So don't look down on preaching, no matter how unskilled the preacher is. If done faithfully, preaching is Christ speaking to you. So far then, we had a long exposition by Paul, but what does it mean to his listeners in Ephesus? And he unpacks that in verse 19. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The reason the Gentiles are told to remember who they were and what Jesus has done for them through his blood is so that they will realize who they are now. They are redeemed by his blood. They are made holy. They are no longer the uncircumcision that's far away from God. They're no longer strangers. They're no longer aliens. They are now fellow citizens with the Jewish Christians. Now that Jesus has prepared room in his father's house for his followers, he calls us all. Jews and Gentiles to come as members of the household of God. You see, Jesus has united them all, given them all the same status as children of God. And so the Gentile Christians are called to remember that. And that should change how they think about themselves. But what does being a part of God's household entail to them? Verse 20 tells us that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And here we see Paul using a metaphor of a building to refer to the believing Gentiles, the believing Jews that Jesus has gathered. And these gathered people who are pictured as a structure it represents the whole assembly of God's people. See, this is God's church, not the building, but the people. 
all of them, all of you. And everyone is reminded through the metaphor here of just what they all are part of. The church of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You see, it's built on the words of the apostles who first preached the gospel. It's built up in the words of the prophets of the Old Testament who gave us the Old Testament scriptures. It is built in the words of the New Testament prophets who helped to build the early church as they affirmed the word of the apostles through the working of the Spirit. See, it is on the basis of scripture which records these words that we find our foundation to be the church. And you know what? If we examine Scripture carefully, we will find at the very heart of the Scripture, the cornerstone. The cornerstone is a foundational stone through which all other stones are placed in alignment to when building a building. The stone then sets the shape and form of the building. So if the stone is crooked, then you'll have a crooked building. If the stone is straight, then you'll have a straight building. And here we are told that the cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ himself. He is the measure by which the church follows and grows into. So it's no accident that all scripture, the foundation, points to Christ because he is the cornerstone. The church, which is the household of God then, is described as forming a holy temple in the Lord, right? Now the temple is not just a ceremonial building, Right? But as we see in the Old Testament, the temple is the dwelling place of God himself. And this is what God's house ultimately is. The temple in which God himself dwells in. Not a building like this cathedral, but a people made holy and united in Christ. God's church has always been the gathering of God's people. You see, as people hear the gospel, they come to Christ, God is then building up this temple until everyone that he has predestined to belong to Christ finally comes into this household, this temple. And Paul needs the Gentile Christians to understand this so they are able to understand who they are and what they are meant to be. To remember who they were and what great mercy God has worked for them in Christ so that they will respond rightly. And to press the point, Paul comes to verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The dwelling of God that's being built isn't merely in the corporate body of the church. You see, as believers are united to Christ in one body, personally, individually, they are also being built up to be a dwelling place for God. The Holy Spirit dwells within the believer which means God himself dwells in them and if you are united to Christ through faith in him then God dwells in you so we see in this passage then Paul is writing to challenge the Christians in Ephesus both Jews and Gentiles to come together as God's people to be reminded of what God has done in their life. But what about us today? I don't know about you, but I don't know many Jews. So what would be the point of this passage to me? Well, firstly, just like the Ephesians, we should remember 
what we were before God saved us. There is absolutely no place in your life to be proud of yourself in regards to your salvation. God owed you nothing. He promised you nothing. But He saves you by His love and grace alone when you were far off from Him. And you see, in remembering that, you will find assurance in your walk with God. There's nothing more in heaven to give you because God did not hold back even from giving up His Son's precious life just to ensure that you are fully adopted as His Son. You are loved with all that God has to give. Like that little girl who was adopted, you are fully part of the family. You are partakers of the same blessing that Jesus Christ Himself partakes in. Therefore, in remembering, trust God. Seek to walk faithfully in response to His love because you are now His heir. Secondly, we have the assurance that Jesus abolished the laws. So we no longer seek to be right with God through obedience to the law. We have peace through Christ. And that means it is by trusting in the work of Christ, relying on Him alone to be the payment for our sins, that we can come to salvation. But then we need to ask the question, why do we do good things? And you need to ask yourself, why do I do good things? Is it because deep inside you're still seeking to curry favour with God? Or is it because you remember who you were, how God has rescued you, and you do good works to please Him in response. Christians do good works, but we do it out of gratitude to God, not as payment towards our salvation. We stand by the righteousness of Christ alone, or we fall because we look to our own insufficient righteousness that we offer before God. Therefore, there's no need to look to the law, there's no need to look to others who are able to be far more Christ-like like us and feel despair. God still loves you despite your weakness, despite your failures. Now, this isn't an excuse to remain where you are, but rather it's to encourage you to not think you are loved less by the Father. It is to spur you to keep on trying. You are no longer under salvation of works, no longer under the law, so stop thinking in that pattern. Thirdly, remember, we have peace with God through Christ. We can call God Abba, Father. Now to ask you, how often do we live our lives in this assurance that the God of all creation Himself is our Father? Think about your choices, your actions. Does it show trust and reliance on this God this God that you have relationship with? Or are your thoughts, actions driven by the fear of the world, the fear of the uncontrollable circumstances? See, we should have comfort. We should be people who are assured of our peace with God even when we fail to live likely. We should know that we have peace with God and it's okay even if the world does not have peace with us. See, we can have confidence to bend our knees, come to God in prayer, even when we have sinned terribly. Even when we feel we are unworthy Christians because of our sins, 
That itself shows you that God is at work in you through your spirit, giving you conviction, calling you to keep on growing in faith. We can therefore have the confidence to live godly lives, even when the world is not at peace with us and rejects us. Even when we look at others and we feel, I'm so bad compared to them. You can have peace with joy because Christ has given you that peace. So enjoy that peace. Live a full life as his child. Fourthly, remember our true identity. We are no longer defined by titles, our job, our club memberships, our status in life. The only identification that matters is that we are citizens and members of God's household. We are then to stand united with Christians who believe in the gospel, regardless of their status, regardless of the style of worship, regardless of what denomination they are from. Whomever trusts in the gospel is your brother and sister. This doesn't change if they are Armenian or Calvinist in theology, if they are Credo-Baptists or Pedo-Baptists, if they are Baptists or Presbyterians, if they hold to the gospel. You are united to them through Christ. We are His church, and that defines who we are. So seek to build up other Christians. Seek to work together to glorify God. And finally, remember that each of you who believes in Jesus has the Holy Spirit within you. God Himself dwells in you, and you are a temple of the Lord. So then, when you choose to sin, lasting after someone, unethical practices in your businesses, money over God, well, you're doing this then against the very nature of who you are. You see, if you are a temple of God, then being holy is not optional, but rather it is just a matter of who you are. You are the temple of God, therefore you are holy. So, fight sin actively in your life. Do not compartmentalize and tell God, well, I will work on this sin, but you know, this sin of unforgiveness, this sin of holiness, this one I don't want to work in. Everything must go because you are a holy temple. The only thing that remains is the desire to model Christ. For He is the cornerstone. He is the temple. He is the standard. And you are the temple that's built in His image. And this call to holiness isn't to qualify you to be God's temple, but it's because you are God's temple that you do this. Remember who you were. Remember what God did for you and understand what you are now. These three things will help you keep Christ central in your life. So as you go home, remember and respond to Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for calling us. We thank You for making us Your children that you have adopted us fully, that you have made us your temple. And we give thanks to Christ through whom you have worked all these things. And we ask for your help, Father, that you yourself will help us through your spirit, that you will remind us to live our lives in this truth. You will help us to grow, You'll help us to realize that we are already holy 
And so help us to live that truth out in our lives. Help us to fight our sins. Help us to be united. Help us to love each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.